Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Drive Into the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, your host, recording this about 24 hours after that unfortunate collapse we saw against the Los Angeles Clippers. And this episode is going to be focused, as I noted last week, on sort of what can each of the young players do to improve. Talk a little bit about this game first. It was obviously a terrible, horrible collapse in a game that's, you know, you look at a team like the Pistons and it's like, okay, they're not going to win games. And yeah, okay, you want draft positioning. You you don't want to lose game after game after game. Uh, you just, you really don't. It's, that's not good for morale. It's not good for any player. And so you want to win one here and there. And if you can get a win against a good team, then great. That's just, that is good for team morale, for team spirit, just for the the, the behavior, emotional behavioral, not behavioral well-being, emotional well-being of these players who are human beings. They're professionals and they can handle losses, but you know, it, I'm 100% sure that it still stings to lose game after game after game, notwithstanding their awareness of, of where they are as a team, you know, the team that they're playing on, which right now doesn't really have to have to win a lot of games. So this would have been not just for the fans, you know, and I know it's it's difficult on us as fans too to watch the team lose game after game after game, but I, I think it would have been good for the players to win this one also. So we all know what went wrong. Well, what went wrong? Excuse me. Yeah, we saw um, Tyron Lue. I almost said Doc Rivers there. He hasn't been the coach of the Clippers for a while, but uh, Ty Lue pulled the starters with about three thirty remaining, and the Pistons blew a thirteen point lead. And so it was at 14, I can't remember, 13 or 14 point lead. And then, of course, completely collapsed in overtime. So how did it happen? I mean, number one, the players aren't very good. You know, that that's just that that's what it is. Uh, the players right now, I should say, are, are not very good. The players on the floor it was the starters for the Pistons and uh, they didn't close out well. OK, that, that that is what it is, though. Honestly, any starting lineup should have been able to hold this lead. Uh, you know, 13 point lead, but three and a half minutes left is is just is enough in the vast majority of circumstances period when the other team puts in Moses Brown and um, I think it's Amir coffee came in as well. Uh, and, and Paul George is off the floor and, and Marcus Morris is off the floor. I think Norman Powell is still on, but um, Matt, whatever the case this is just not a good roster and, and your starting lineup should be able to handle that. You know, regardless, they should be able to hold the lead against a good, a good opposing lineup. This one did not. Okay. So that's on the players, and that, that is what it is. And then we come to Dwayne Casey. And I know I'm belaboring this point. I'll just say it again. Dwayne Casey is a really, 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 really bad late-game coach. A coach who is not only non-adaptive, but tends to, seeming, just tends to seemingly shrink within himself when it comes to these late-game scenarios and go from poor offensive coach to basically absentee offensive coach as any cohesion or coherence in the in the offense seems to completely slip away and the players just fall back on iso just fall back on road sets fall back on just doing very very little whether it's out of a timeout or or just in common play so okay uh, the pistons screwed up uh, you know they they gave up a couple baskets i think they were down they were up seven okay i, I don't remember if casey called the timeout i don't think he did i do know that he changed nothing clippers came further back and then we had these two critical positions. And again, in case he did nothing really to intervene, and he doesn't. In these situations, he doesn't do anything to intervene. He doesn't change anything. Like he doesn't gain more. He doesn't take more control. He loses control. And so it's not just that he stands by while while things are collapsing. It's that he like he becomes even worse 
I mean, he, he just seems to just relinquish control when things are collapsing. And so we had these final two possessions. And the first one was, okay, we're just going to run Killian Hayes in a pick and roll and for a pull-up two. And it's like, okay, Killian's doing pretty well in pick pull-up twos. But that's, I mean, that, that's an easy play to see coming. I mean, everybody knows what Killian's going to do. I mean, the audience knows, the, the players know, the coaches know that Killian is going to come around that pick and roll. He's, he's not going to try to get to the basket. He's just going to take a pull-up two. I mean, you know what he's going to do. And also, that's just not a good set to be running in a critical situation. I mean, this is Casey comes on the heels of Stan Van Gundy, who is even worse at calling out of timeout plays. Like, genuinely, just uh, I got stuck there between genuinely and legitimately. Horrible. Like, absolutely and utterly horrible. And uh, I've thought since Casey came onto the team, and this is how I felt even before he came onto the team when he was being considered, when he was being considered, was that he shares, in smaller measure, uh, some of Stan Van Gundy's significant, just crowning coaching flaws. And of course, you've got kind of lack of imagination and rigidity and whatever else. And, and Van Gundy's on like kind of the extreme end and all these negative qualities. Casey has them to a lesser degree, but still has them. Uh, calling plays out of timeouts is not one of his strong suits. Of course, Van Gundy was catastrophically worse. Uh, like, for example, uh, oh, this one's good. So uh, we all know Andre Drummond. He just Van Gundy desperately wanted Drummond to be a good post player. Instead, Drummond was like one of the worst. Uh, I wouldn't say one of the worst, the worst during his time under Van Gundy, the worst high volume post player of like the last 15 years in the NBA. I mean, he was comically bad. And this was back, and I think this was a long time ago. This was like, or I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Here's a stat that, um, that was that was trotted out. It was back in like 2017, I think. Uh, man, I haven't talked to this guy in a long time. I think it was Duncan Smith. So uh, that uh, during that 2016-2017 season, I believe that's extended to the previous two seasons as well. Uh, Drummond was less efficient from the post than he was from the free throw line, and that was at the point at which he was genuinely the worst free throw shooter in the history of the league. So this, I think, was in 2016, the 2016-2017 season. And so the Pistons were playing against the Jazz. The Jazz went out and went on a run. Van Gundy called a timeout, and his out of timeout play was to post up Andre Drummond, like arguably the, the you know the league's worst post player among centers, against Rudy Gobert, uh, the best defender in the league. And obviously, you know the the outcome is predictable. Or another time when, and this would have been in, I believe January of twenty uh, January of twenty eighteen, so not long before the trade that brought Blake Griffin uh, to the Pistons. They were in a last, you know, final play scenario against the Pelicans, I think. And he didn't put Luke Kennard on the floor. He decided to keep Ish Smith out there and have him inbound the ball, which meant that nobody was guarding Ish because nobody respected, rightly so, respected him as a shooter. He had, he had Drummond on there, even though the Pistons were down three. Obviously, the play didn't work out. And, and of course, he, he gave it to Avery Bradley because he loved Avery Bradley, even though Bradley at that point was... Had, had devolved into like a complete and utter nightmare on offense for the Pistons. Uh, whatever. In any case, so uh, I guess that's one way of saying it could be worse. But you know, Casey then I believe called another uh, an, another out of timeout player. No, I think that was the out of timeout play. And then the next time they came down, which was a possession in which I, I think in, in this situation they could have won the game. Sorry, I really should have gone back and watched the final minutes. Part of me is not very inclined to, but. This was the last real play the Pistons ran. It was just running down the clock until Killian had it with like six seconds left, running around a pick. And again, everybody knows what he's going to do. Even he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's not going to attack the basket. He knows he's just he's going to go around. And he's going to look for a pull-up. 
So in this situation, the the Clippers managed to stop him and keep him from taking that. So he was caught in no man's land with very little time left in the shot clock. And so he passes to Jalen Duran. And Jalen Duran is caught in no man's land with very little time left in the shot clock. So he, to his credit, finds and hauls a pass over uh, to the opposite side of the courts to uh, to Alec Burks, who, to his own credit, you know, just to leap and catch the pass and still attempt to shot, but it's a bad shot. I mean, these are not out-of-timeout sets. These are just a coach who seemingly just falls apart late in games. Then, of course, overtime came along. Now uh, The Clippers blew the Pistons out. Casey called a timeout in the middle of it, and the, the gist of his message seems to have been, you know, guys, go out there and, and give it your best shot and just do better because they did nothing different. So uh, one thing we can say about Casey in terms of late game scenarios is that he has lost a lot of games for the Pistons down the straight. You know, a lot of plays helped to lose, put it that way. His coaching has helped to lose a lot of close games for the Pistons over the last two plus seasons. And in some ways that has been a positive. Of course, in this kind of situation, it's extremely annoying, even though the Pistons aren't trying to win and because they really could use this game. Also, because the bad coaching fatigue that I know a lot of us has is becoming realer and realer. For my part, I'm so deep in the Dwayne Casey coaching experience in Detroit that last night I just felt this just a sense of vague resignation rather than anger. It's just, it's going to happen with him. So was this one for the best? I mean, it's like, yay, the Pistons, you know, cool. Another loss in the standings, um, you know, draft positioning is important. Were there any positives to be taken away from this? Uh, well, number one, I, I really wish the Pistons would have won. I think that would have been for the best. I think the fact that they got an additional loss and as the season marches toward a very strong draft class was not worthwhile. I don't think that's a very, very, very minor silver lining at this point. Uh, I don't think the Pistons are going to go in there and shoot like 50% from three anytime soon. I think the shooting was nice, but uh, they, they really shot, they really punched far above their weight in that capacity. There were, there were some good things about it, you know, good things in the game. Like Jalen Duran has, has been a bright spot. Generally lately, Isaiah Stewart looked pretty good, mm. but it hurts. It hurts to watch. And, and maybe, maybe there's that, that's a little bit of me. And they're talking that, uh, excuse me, just a, a small part of me that's like, well, I just want, I want to see this team get some wins. I, I don't think so, though. I think I, I fully, I think even on a, on a, on, on every level, feel like, okay, I know this team isn't going to win many games, but I, I think that they, I just wish they had won this one. So as far as Casey goes, I'll say it again. Do I advocate that the team fire him right now? No, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that would make any good sense. I think it would be disruptive. And I, I don't think the Pistons are, are likely to gain more than they would lose from doing that. I mean, this is not a team that's going to be winning many games anyway. And in case he does run a good blocker room and his players do really like him. And, and he does seem to be good for uh, for player development, though, you know, who knows? That could be true of another coach. And, and there are certain cases, there are certain players, you know, cases in which I'm not 100% sure that he's he's always the best coach. But in, in terms of development, and Jaden Ivey in particular, I'll talk about that. Um, I, I'm just, I'm at a point like I wouldn't, be upset if he were to be fired and then certainly i hope that they move on in the offseason uh, i think it's time very much so you know casey casey is what he is and even for a developing roster and, and especially for a roster that's looking to move on to, to hopefully winning more games next season eh, I, I just don't i don't think he's it i think he he is what he is i, I have a term for older coaches uh become fossilized which means that they they're not going to change casey's not the only one you look to the aforementioned Doc Rivers, who just has a bunch of faults. I mean, he's he's a better winning coach, in my opinion, but he has a bunch of faults that are never going to change, and and that are bad for his team. And you know, it is it just is what it is. So I hope the Pistons move on in the off season. So let's move on to the meat of the episode. So let's start with Killian Hayes. 
I spoke last week about what I think that Killian has been doing well lately. And uh, of course, Killian is in the midst of what is for him kind of a career renaissance. Funny thing to say, even though he's, you know, he's because he's only in his third season. But it's, it's definitely noticeable given, given just given how much he struggled in his first like one and a quarter seasons, a quarter season being his rookie season. And just, just how awful he was in his second season and to begin this one. Whatever the case. So we went over that. I said, I still believe that you know, guy might be heading in the direction of a solid backup point guard on a, on a good team in the future. I'd be happy with that. Um, I know it came out recently that uh, that Tyrese Halliburton said he was going to be drafted by Detroit, which which hurts a little bit because of how Tyrese has, has ended up. I mean, it, the guys could very well be um, considered a you know the top five point guard at this point. I mean, that that's there are a lot of good point guards in this week, so maybe top five. I'd have to, I'd, I, you know, I would have to even look look at the list here. He's he's going to be a very good point guard, I think. You think about your draft scenarios. Do you get Halliburton? I mean, you know, you probably win more games with Halliburton. The Pistons lost a lot of close ones the season before with either a very bad Hayes or or an entirely absent Hayes on the roster. And in Halliburton, who was good in his rookie season, really may have made the difference. Who knows? In that case, do you end up with like an Evan Mobley instead? It's an interesting scenario to think about. And there, there was the matter of him wanting to go to Sacramento. Uh, and I believe I asked uh, James Edwards, who's uh, a Pistons beat writer for The Athletic, about that. I don't remember when. And he said that the Pistons drafted Taser Halliburton, not because of that, just because they wanted Killian. Uh, they wanted Killian. They didn't, you know, they wanted him more than they wanted Halliburton. And of course, I was on the Killian train back then. Um, I'm not pointing fingers here, um, but yeah, that was just that was just something I uh, that that came to mind as I was talking about this. Uh, yeah, he said he had a great workout. Donovan Mitchell said the same thing, uh, actually, incidentally, back in you know about his workout with the Pistons prior to the 2018 draft. Uh, that one hurt as well. Um, but uh, that's that's an entirely entirely different story, and that was a long time ago. Now it was almost five years. All right, so Killian, what he can improve? So number one is consistency. He's had some good games, you know, by all means. And I'm kind of dating his his current stretch back to the 27th of October. Excuse me, 27th of November, which is a game against the Cavaliers. So he's in game 15. He's played 15 games since that time. And he still kind of has two awful games to every genuinely good one with, you know, with quite a few meh games as well. Uh, only three games in the past 15 uh, at or above decent efficiency uh, for a player at his position in the NBA. So consistency is a thing. He's, he's just, he still had quite a, quite a bit in the way of stinkers. And efficiency. All right. Th- this is one of the big things. Like his, his efficiency is still bad. Like if, if you date it back to, uh, to the game against Cleveland, 43.5% from the field, uh, 34.3% from three. His true shooting percentage is about 51, which is not so good, especially for a player who doesn't really penetrate to the interior. I'll get to that. So Killian has an inefficient shot, pro- shot profile, and part of that is his continued skittishness about attacking into contact. So he he takes a relatively small volume of threes, uh, or I should say he makes about, his average is about one and a half three-point makes per game. And he attempts a lot of pull-up twos and floaters and, uh, and and other kind of like generally not so efficient mid-range offense. And to his credit, over this 15, uh, 15 game span, he's been averaging about uh, about forty nine percent on more than five pull-up uh, pull-up twos per game, and that's great. I mean, that's that's a very good percentage. As I, as I've said, that's that's a use very useful weapon to have in your arsenal. However, it should only be a weapon. For very, very few players, is that a means to an end. 
and but for Killian, they really are his go-to option. And as I said, I mean, high forties on pull-up twos, like sweet. That's that's really good. But you know, if that's mainly what you're doing, it means you're going to be an inefficient offensive player because those just aren't that efficient. So Killian doesn't take a lot of threes. Excuse me, doesn't make a lot of threes, and he doesn't get to the rim. And rim offense at the rim is generally very high efficiency, just simply because it's a place where you score a high percentage, and also because you get free throws. Free, free throws are very, very high percentage offense. And Killian doesn't do that. He just he not only it's not so much that he doesn't do it well; it's that he just doesn't really try. He doesn't try to to attack into the interior. He just generally pulls up from pulls up for a two uh, for a two point jumper or the occasional floater. So that hurts. And yeah, like his free throw rate is, is, you know, comically low, like absolutely terrible. If you look at starting lead handlers across the span, you know, I'm referring to that 15 game span, nobody is worse than he is. The only guy you could look at is kind of like, oh, maybe like a, maybe a lead handler is, is Ben Simmons, though. I mean, the guy's playing behind Kyrie, playing behind Durant. And in any case, Ben Simmons is not the guy you want to be comparing yourself to as far as being willing to attack any contact and possibly get the, get to the free throw line. Basically Killian is averaging like, you know, well under two free throw attempts per 100 possessions, which is like a horrible, well, not horrible, whatever you want to call it. You don't have to call it horrible. It's extremely low. So he doesn't get that offense either. So basically inefficient shot profile. You know, if he wants to take a lot more threes, uh, sweet, that'll help things. Uh, it means he'll be, you know, creating less offense, whatever. But I mean, this this brings us to really the crux of the issue with Killian or a crux of an issue with Killian, which is that he does not attack the interior. And that means that he doesn't get access to that high efficiency offense at the rim. He doesn't get uh, access to that high efficiency offense at the free throw line. He isn't drawing fouls from the other team, which is also a thing. It was also very, very nice to be able to do. It also means he's not breaking down defenses. And a player who cannot break down defenses is a limited player. And especially if you are a lead handler who cannot break down defenses, you are giving up a lot. Now, let's compare Killian to Cade. Like, I think that Killian has, you know, has better vision and is a better passer, like a better pure passer, at least with his left hand, uh, than Cade. But it's, it's, in this situation, it's how much can you really bring those skills to bear? Like how much are you putting yourself into a situation to maximize those assets? And I'd say that Killian gets a great deal less out of those, you know, that aspect of his game than Cade, who isn't quite as good a pure passer, gets out of his own. That's because Cade is very good at breaking down opposing defenses. He penetrates, opponents have to come to help, and then he makes the right pass uh, to, to take advantage of that. Whether it's, and don't, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm not comparing Killian to Cade and saying that Cade is like, does not have good passing vision because he does. He's more turnover prone, of course. But he's, he's a very, 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 very smart guy. Uh, very smart basketball player. Um, I don't know. Those two aren't necessarily always one and the same, but, but we don't need to judge uh, whatever. We're just talking about his basketball IQ here. His offensive IQ is excellent. So he makes a pass either to an open man or to or to somebody else. It's just the, generally the right pass to, to get the defense wrong-footed. And it's, it just doesn't have to be just the the driving kick that's always going to get you the shot. It can, just, it can be the, the right pass that really starts the cascade that gets the Pistons a good opportunity that really just gets the defense wrong footed. And like Miami is the ultimate expression of this. Like somebody will penetrate, you know, but with these days and there's a lot of off ball movements, ball gets kicked around and around and around and around. And eventually, well, not this year because the heat are struggling, but in ideal circumstances, the, the defense is eventually wrong footed enough that 
you know, they get a good opportunity. Like generally the defense ends up, in, you know, ends up in, in bad shape, you know, in bad position, just out of position and, and Elaine is found. Of course, that's Spolstra. Spolstra is an amazing coach, but so Killian doesn't do this. Generally when he's driving in, I mean, he doesn't attract help. The defenses know what he's going to do. They don't send another mad at him, a man at him, excuse me. And so it's just your typical one-on-one offense. Which is, you know, and one-on-one, and what I mean is that there's only one defender attached to him, and nobody, and nobody goes away from the assignment that they have because they know that that they don't need to. He's, he's not going to penetrate into the interior and score at the baskets. They, they don't need to come in and stop that. Uh, he's not willing to drive into contact, and he's just not going to try to penetrate into the interior. And so, uh, not only again is he not getting access to that high efficiency offense, but he's, you know, it, it's kind of what you see is what you get. Like he might get a good pass to a teammate for a shot. Um, but you know, that, that pass, whatever pass he makes is just that pass. I mean, nothing else is, uh, nothing is going to come. Hopefully a good shot will come of it, but I mean, in his situation, probably less of a good shot than you would find if, if he were able to break down defenses. Cause again, nobody has come to help. So he's not like hitting a wide open man in the corner for the most part. Sometimes he does, but uh, his average pass is not going to, his average driving kick is not going to find like a, a super wide open guy, but uh, it's like whatever happens just tends to stop there like because he has not wrong foot of the defense at all. Uh, whatever comes of that pass, if it's not a shot, is just kind of a reset. So uh, I've spoken at length about this. It's just like that the fact that like a lead handler who can't break down opposing defenses, who cannot penetrate, just who, who cannot wrong foot defenses that way is losing a lot of value. I guess it's a very, very essential skill to have for a lead handler. And um, I mean, some guys can compensate for it by just being like spectacular shooters, but I'm, I'm struggling to think of one right now amongst lead handlers, amongst guys who are really facilitators for others, instead of just guys who are pure creators, like like Durant, for example, you just take him the ball and say, get me a bucket, and he does it better than almost anybody else ever has. So it's an issue with Killian's game, and it's one that's going to continue to hurt him uh, in just in terms of leading an offense and in terms of being and having a more efficient shot profile until, and that's an, if he does something about it. So, uh, Killian start trying. I don't know what, I don't know why he's not trying. I don't, I don't know if, if Dwayne Casey encourages it. I've got to think he does. And Killian just doesn't do it. I don't know what the issue is, but he's about as contact averse as anybody in the NBA. And that's no good. So for Killian consistency, shot profile, attack the rim, because I brought up this equation before my equation for value is, what you provide in the court minus your opportunity cost and the opportunity cost of fielding a lead handler uh, who cannot attack the interior, cannot break down opposing de- opposing defenses is significant. You know, you could instead have a lead handler who can do those things. And it's, uh, yeah, maybe I, I suppose I just made certainly a statement of the obvious, but I just, I consider it a, a pretty big swing factor for Killian and something that it, without it, it's going to be difficult for him to, it's really going to limit his ceiling, even as a backup point guard. That's how how I see it at the moment. In any case, let's move on to Jalen Duran. So again, talked about what Duran last week about what Duran has done well, and for the most part, he's just doing what's asked of him. Like on offense, yeah, what I'm going to talk about now is offense. He's just doing what's asked of him, which is basically just be a garbage man and finish easy baskets. So strong dunker by all means, and uh, but one area in which he has been pretty weak, and an area in which he was also very weak in the NCAA is on layups. He's shooting 36% on those in the season, which is needless to say really, really bad for guys, you know, but for anybody, but certainly for a big who's primarily just finishing and then really isn't trying to create much. Uh, and then 37% on those as a starter. Sure, he can dunk a lot of stuff, but layups are still important. Uh, and there are situations in which you are not going to be able to dunk the ball, of course. 
uh, situations in which you'll get it in a difficult position. And if you've got solid touch, you might be able to get yourself an and one you know, as, as you're fouled. And it's, it's just points. If you're, if you have bad touch around the basket in terms of layups, it's points that you're going to be giving up. Now we're not talking about an Andre Drummond situation here. Um, I mean, Duran seems fully willing to use his, his excellent physical assets to carve out space for himself. He's not, he does not have like the horrible scoring touch that Drummond had. Now, Drummond who just seemed to have no mind for when he should shoot it and how he should shoot it when, you know, when he should shoot it, like, you know, take some time, establish position, get a good shot up. Um, didn't want to be physical. Just wanted to get his bed. Just wanted to get his bucket as soon as he could. Had, had really no eye for when to do it. Uh, obviously, wasn't much of a passer <laughs> when you know just wanted to shoot it. Whatever. Not he. So Duran is not that. But Duran just kind of struggles on what should be fairly simple attempts for him if he's not dunking it. And that was the case at at Memphis as well. Uh, like amongst the four major centers in the draft, I suppose it was five. That was uh, Duran, Holmgren, uh, Mark Williams. Um, Coloco and uh, Kessler. So he was quite a bit worse on layups than Kessler and Coloco. He was a great deal worse than Williams and Holmgren. And that, that was a question. It's like, is this just an issue of rawness or poor touch? Again, that, that's not a discussion I want to get into. I want to get into in this episode, but it, it's especially if you're traditional big and you're really going to be relied upon because you're not providing, you know, spacing or any sort of creation. To, to finish at a really high percentage around the basket, those layups have you've got to be there. You're not just you're not just always going to be able to dunk the ball. So that's something he should work on. Now, uh, when it comes to Duran, I've heard uh, you know there's there's always the question of comps, you know, for any player. And there are a lot of players who play like he does, like or like we we hope that he the player we hope we, he will be, which is you know very physically imposing. Um, you know, dunks everything he can, uh, plays really strong defense, and, and very athletic. And, and one name. So, you know, there, there are a fair number of players who play that way. One name that I've heard come up recently that I feel like uh, may be setting people up for disappointment a little bit is Dwight Howard. So, uh, you know, we know what Dwight Howard became ultimately in his career. But for those first, like, uh, six or so seasons, not first six or six, excuse me, not his first six or so seasons, the six or so seasons before his injury in L.A., uh, and that season in LA was not good for him, and those injuries took a ton out of him. I mean, what Dwight Howard was was just an incredibly imposing big man who was on course at that point to be arguably, you know, one of the one of the greatest big men of all time. Like in those six seasons, like almost inarguably a top five player in the NBA. Uh, you know, averaged like 20, 20 points on high efficiency. He was the league's best rebounder. He won three Defensive Player of the Year awards. He made first team All NBA five times. You know, he carried a, a really incredibly unimpressive Magic squad. Uh, to the 2009 finals and so on and so forth. So I, I think it just it should be remembered when it comes to Dwight that very, very few players have had, like very few players in like the last two decades have had that sort of success. So uh, in any case, uh, what I feel like I see from Duran lately is almost kind of a um, a slightly less athletic and but hopefully a little bit more switchable prime Tyson Chandler, who was genuinely a very good player. I mean, defensive player of the year one year, very high efficiency scorer, and you know, really strong role man, and yeah, that that's just kind of what I'm seeing. Though partially, that's because Duran loves to tap out offensive rebounds, and, and that was something that kind of Tyson Chandler that was almost his trademark as a rebounder was that he would go up and he would tap offensive rebounds out to the perimeter. Uh, whatever the case, yeah, I, I, I would be very happy if he reached uh, reached those heights. Uh, Tyson Chandler, of course, also just a super hard worker and, and a team player, uh, NBA champion, of course. Needless to say, uh, with the the Mavericks back in 2011. 
So that's one thing also for Duran, uh, rim protection. So Duran on paper looks like, okay, you know, really strong at blocking the ball, contest shots really well. On, on rim defense, he's kind of struggling. And, and that's partly because it's just something that, uh, you know, he's raw and needs to do some work on it. Uh, I think he's got the touch there, so to speak. Uh, he's got the mind for it. it. It's just, this is just one of those things for me. You look at you look at him and or I look at him and say, okay, he just needs to learn. Also, not an ideal situation. Uh, the way that Casey runs this offense in terms of switching and just the troubles that the Pistons have in terms of bad defenders means that, like, honest to goodness, like rim defense is not really like happening here. Uh, like, it, ironically, it's generally if anybody's doing it, it's Marvin Bagley, and that's in part because he can't switch and just plays drop defense. He's also terrible at rim protection uh, of his own accord. So. Yeah, it, it just in terms of develop, getting that opportunity to just play a more traditional uh, rim defense role while also switching, of course. I'm not talking about him just hanging out near the rim, which is basically what New Orleans Noel has to do. He's just hanging out in the interior. can't do that in the NBA these days. Um, he will be asked to switch. But the whole switch everything thing is making things quite a bit worse. So he's not exactly being set up for success in this situation. Even Isaiah Stewart is having a horrible time, even at center, even before Duran began to start. Um Though I guess Stewart was next to Bagley before that. Whatever the case, Stewart even was having a difficult time in terms of rim protection and is still having a difficult time in terms of rim protection just because of the scheme. Uh, the scheme and the presence of some bad defenders near them, uh, next to him. So, yeah, not not really an ideal situation for Jalen Duran, I would say. And not much more to say about that. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the defensive scheme. I know the personnel are not so good. I don't think that this defense is necessary. <laughs> And uh, the question of it's the greatest for for his development also. Um, yeah, but it just it, it, as far as traditional rim protecting goes, when he gets to do it, um, he, yeah, like a, a lot of when he does it, though, I mean, again, I, I imagine this is what shows up in the stats is like, let's say he has to switch and just basically come from the perimeter on in, so, you know, what, moving laterally to keep up with, with the player is faster than he is. So again, yeah, like I said, you know, even then he's contesting and he's going to have to do that in the NBA period, and I think he'll be good at it. But he's not doing a lot of like really basic traditional rim defense. And when he does do it, there's just some learning that, that they needs to do. Let's move on to the aforementioned Marvin Bagley. Uh, defense obviously needs to improve upon it. I mentioned last week he'd improved a little bit in terms of drop coverage, just in, in, just in terms of one-on-one defense against uh, opposing centers in the paint. And yeah, uh, also, like I said, you know, any improvement is improvement. It's good to see. Um, he's still an utter mess in terms of just traditional rim protection. One of the absolute worst in the league, in fact. And he's also, like, though he has improved a little bit in drop, he's still bad there. He's a complete nightmare in terms of switches. Like hopeless and in a, in a switch-heavy defensive scheme. His defensive IQ is terrible. So if the opposition forces, if he's on the floor and the opposition forces the Pistons to do a bunch of switches, which of course they will happily do, because they switch everything. That's the nature of the defense, for better or worse. Again, I'm not a huge fan. If that happens, then Bagley it'll eventually fall apart, and the the opposition will get a good in in the in most situations it'll fall apart, and the offense will get a, a good opportunity because Marvin Bagley will screw up a switch because he does not have the awareness of the, just the defensive IQ to to do that. So yeah, in terms of like basically the Pistons, Casey seems to just use him as much as possible as a drop defender, possibly just an awareness of that fact. And again with Bagley, I don't think this is a likely to improve a good deal. I think this is a guy who should not really realistically be playing center at all on defense. It can be avoided. That's a pretty big weakness. Um, and in terms of just how he plays on offense right now, um, he needs 
so th- that that gets into another topic. Like, yeah, if he's going to be playing primarily at center, um, then I don't see it working at all for that matter. I mean, he's just such a catastrophic minus on the defensive end, even if it becomes quite a bit better on offense. Um, I mean, that, that's just another thing. No matter where he's playing, he's going to need to become significantly more versatile and more effective on offense. He's been shooting at a good percentage from the restricted area. He's been creating some offense there, you know, from around the rim and, and making some difficult shots. And it's like, that's great. He's also attempting a fair amount of offense from the interior, but outside of the restricted area, he's hitting that, uh, like the mid forties, obviously that's very bad. Uh, he's not shooting threes. That's not going to fly when he does shoot threes. It's not going well. Basically Marvin Bagley, who I think is, is going to be in this league for as long as he's in this league, primarily his power forward again, because his defense is terrific and, Sure, you can babysit him with somebody who can play defense, uh, who can play, uh, who can maybe play um, center on defense while Bagley plays center on offense. It's not an ideal situation. I don't see that being um, being really very sustainable at all, particularly if he's starting, which I, yeah, you, you hope for it. But, you know, do we really think that Marvin Bagley is going to be that guy uh, who's mm-hmm. going to be power forward and uh, in, in a, on a contender? I hope so, but looks increasingly unlikely. But whatever he's going to do, I mean, it's his defense, even as a perimeter defender. Again, if he has to switch, like if you play him a power forward, you don't have to deal with his with his terrible interior defense. But he's still a liability, so he has to be a good offensive player, like a genuinely good offensive player. This needs to be a guy who is a genuine three point th- threat, who is who is willing and able uh, to shoot those, uh, who who can draw his assignment out to to the perimeter to guard him closely, create better spacing for his uh, for his teammates to attack those closeouts and do that effectively. Uh, to become solid enough on the drive, as well as being a vertical spacing threat, as well as being a solid role man. I mean, Marvin Bagley is going to need to be genuinely good on offense to be a rotation player for a contender. So his defense, we'd love to see some improvement there. His offense needs a lot of improvement too. Right now, he is just a guy who scores from the interior. He's just, you know he's a solid enough role man who you know who's who's a pretty good interior. You know, he's a pretty good scorer around the rim while being a horrible defender, and that's nowhere near good enough to be you know, to, to be anywhere near a positive value player in the NBA. So Bagley for me has been very disappointing so far. Season's still young, but we need to see a lot of improvement on offense. Now a cool from our sponsor. The NBA season is heating up and there's still so many unknowns. For example, which team will come out of each conference into the postseason. If you're looking to get in on the action, bet with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet just $5 per game money line on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost to DraftKings step-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place the same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets on which team will win, total rebounds, and more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. For example, if you're inclined to bet on NCAA bowl games, you can bet on the upcoming BCS series. Download the app now, sign up with code TBPN, place a $5 pregame money line bet on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age, open to ready restriction supplies. See show notes for details. Jaden Ivey. So, uh, has struggled. I, as I mentioned at the tail end of last week's episode, I recorded that on the Saturday before it posted and he had a big game in the middle there, a big game in which he hit a lot of in-between offense, a lot of floaters, a lot of pull-up twos. He got hot. It's like, it's nice to see him do well at it, but I don't think it's a thing you really can expect to see repeated. And we, and we have anytime soon, we not expect to see repeated on a regular basis, certainly. And we have not in the game since. So, uh, he's he's been struggling because teams know what he's going to do, and he he really needs to work. They know they know he's going to drive in, and they collapse. And and Jaden Ivey has been doing his best to be to be a solid passer. He's not kind of like a guy who's 
I hope he will eventually. This is one of my concerns about him. I don't think he's likely to be the guy who's going to make those really good split-second reads and passes. Like, for example, the guy whom a lot of people wanted to comp him to, which is, is John Morant, who, and though Ivy is athletic, of course, Morant is, you know, this spectacular athlete and unbelievably agile and also a very strong passer. Um, Ivy isn't that kind of passer. And he doesn't have, he's, he's immensely athletic himself, like tremendously athletic. He doesn't have Morant's like kind of like top 0.1% athleticism for a guard. I don't mean to say that Morant isn't a smart player. I mean, he's a super smart offensive player, absolutely. And, and that includes his manner of attacking the basket. But he's also just so explosive and so fast and and so agile that if there's a lane, he's going to just be able to explode through it. And Ivy's not quite that athletic. He's still a guy who's going to have to be smart, like the vast majority of players do. You know, even even super fast guards have to be about getting to a, getting to good spots and scoring from them, rather than just trying to blitz right up the middle and just score based on his athleticism alone. Um, you know, most explosive guards in the NBA can't do that, and and he, you know, he can't get away in his athleticism alone. So basically, what happens right now is that. He'll just go straight up the middle, and a lot of the time he'll either try to score just through multiple NBA defenders and get swatted. Like he's been blocked thirty-seven times on layup attempts. That's quite a you know that's quite a bit because I mean you can do that in the NCAA. Just get past guys and get there. You know before NCAA caliber defenders could really properly contest you in the NBA. It's not going to fly. Uh, or he'll realize he's never reached the basket. He'll try to pass it. Uh, often it's not going to be a good pass. Uh, or it'll be a turnover because, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not sure if he's ever going to be that guy who really makes like legitimately good reads and passes off the drive. I, I think he'll get to a point where he can make these basic passes he's been making, but if he gets himself into a bad position, uh, you know, his passes at this point, not likely to be a good one. But in any case, we're just talking scoring here. So he'll either just uh, end up taking a shot that gets swatted because he just he, he attempted in the difficult coverage that was too difficult. He'll get himself into a position where he's trying to score, but he's just too tightly contested and misses. And, you know, in, in both of those instances, it's generally a 5v4 break uh, the other way. Um, just just basically, he needs to refine how he's driving. Like in the NCAA, his go-to move was just to turn the corner, going to the right on an NCAA caliber defender and get to the rim and score from the right side of the basket before the rim protection got there. And you're not going to be able to do that in the NBA. I mean, defenders and defenses are just too good. So he's got to know how to pick his battles, plan his routes, get to his spots. I mean, these are things I think that he'll learn, but for right now, it's a struggle. The fact that he has no in-between game is not helpful. I mean, it's it's difficult to be efficient from you know from mid-range, you know, even from you know in the paint outside the restricted area on floaters. Uh, it's you know those are difficult shots. And there are also shots at which Ivy is, is really bad. I mean, you want to have at least the capacity to punish opposing teams if they just give you those shots. Most guys can't really do it super well. But just to put it succinctly, Ivy is just bad at it. He was bad at it at Purdue. Um, you know, like on pull-up twos in his sophomore season at Purdue, he shot in the high teens. It wasn't a huge volume, like maybe, you know, if I remember correctly, in the low 40s. But he was awful at them. He's still awful at them in the NBA. Not that awful, but... Thirty-one percent on mid-range shots, thirty percent on pull-up twos, thirty percent on shots inside the paint and outside the restricted area. Uh, NBA.com isn't super reliable on, on properly logging the number of floaters a player takes, but it lists him as twenty-seven percent on those. So it, he doesn't really have that to fall back on at all. 
basically it's just blitz into the interior and try to score at the basket or try to score, you know, or try that in between the offense that he's really bad at. His pull-up three is also a really gone on the gutter. So really in terms of an, an on-ball attacker at this point, he's really struggling. Uh, his catch-and-shoot numbers have improved, which is nice. From three, he's uh, at about 36, wait, I think 37% on those. And that's nice, though he's still very inconsistent, which was also his uh, an issue for him at Purdue, or what was an issue for him at Purdue, rather. It's just a, a tremendous inconsistency from three. So decision-making has to improve. And I think this is something that'll learn. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think that Ivy's going to take some time in the NBA. I think it might be next season before we really see him come online. Uh, that said, the coaching is not helping him at all. Basically, Dwayne Casey does not know how to run to. He, just, he, just does, he does not have the offensive acumen to run to ball handlers in tandem. Killian Hayes is currently the ball handler. Ivy gets pushed to the periphery of the offense, and his involvement is generally, let's give him a pick and then just ask him to blitz into the interior and defenses know how to play him. Uh, that's not good for him. I mean, he doesn't really get much in the way of chances to attack, you know, to, to to get the ball when he's already on the move in an advantageous position and attack the basket from there. It's basically just here, let's get the guy to get the guy a pick and ask him to just blitz into the interior and score at the rim. And he, you know, he's that's is not really putting him in a position to succeed at this point. Again, it's something at which I think he's going to improve a lot, but yeah, I don't think he's really being put in position to succeed at this stage. So yeah, that's what I'd say about Ivy. Just, uh, you know, refine his decision-making, especially on the drive. I mean, you can say work on an in-between game. Of course, that's going to be important and and work on your consistency. These are kind of somewhat raw developing players' problems. So that's kind of a lot to ask. These are just general issues that need to be worked on. Uh, But yeah, when when he has been on the floor, uh, even like there there are plenty of times when he's on the floor without Killian because Casey actually tenses has been staggering them recently, especially... In games, this this was definitely the case against the Clippers when Corey Joseph hasn't been playing, and you know even in that situation when Ivy is the sole ball handler, he struggles because it's you know it's basically just pick and roll, pick and roll, pick and roll, and it's a little bit simplistic, and and again not something he's doing well at. I don't think something I don't think it's something you know a role that he's very particularly well suited to at this stage. In any case, I feel like I'm rambling about Ivy, so I'm going to move on. Uh, Isaiah Stewart. Needs to improve on. Keep working on attacking the rim if he's going to be playing a power forward. I mean, he's been shooting super well, but that's that's not going to be enough for him. I mean, I don't know if, if, if any of us really see Isaiah Stewart as the, well, who knows. I don't see Isaiah Stewart as the power forward going forward for a contender. I think you're going to have to replace him with somebody better, uh, particularly more skilled as a scorer. But, I mean, if it, it, like he's the fifth best guy in the starting lineup, like, you know, I've seen him, I've heard him compared to P.J. Tucker, for example. Uh, then it then maybe a little bit different, but I mean PJ Tucker has been a guy who has largely succeeded playing behind you know the Giannis's and the, the James Hardens and you know now the and the Jimmy Butlers and now the Joel Embiid's of the world. I mean he's a role player of whom extremely little was asked on offense. As for Stewart, yeah, just continue diversifying your tool set. You know he's been doing much better at attacking closeouts, at uh, doing some bully ball around the rim though he's not super efficient at that and. Passing. This is one thing that that could really be a ceiling skill for Isaiah Stewart. He may just not really have it in him, and if he does not, then this is going to limit what he can do as an offensive player on offense in general. It's still an awful passer. Uh, when he gets the ball, he's he's generally not looking to pass it. And sure, part of this is because he's a play finisher from three, but part of it is just that he does not really seem to have the acumen 
has not seemed to, to like when he's putting the ball on the floor, something in which he's gotten significantly better. He just does not seem to be thinking too much about how to fit within an offense, like make the right passes, whether it's just even thinking to pass at all or making a good pass. Uh, and if he does make a pass, yeah, it's generally not a high quality one. And th- that just may be what it is. Um, and if, if you have a guy who's just not really able to make the right pass, uh, who turns into a bit of a black hole on offense when he puts the ball on the floor, uh, that's far from ideal. When you're putting the ball on the floor, you, you don't want it to just be just putting the ball on the floor. And that's that you want it to also potentially be a means to wrong for the defense and get a, to just, just really get that, that fully full breaking down of the defense going be part of it, not just initiate it, be part of it and get your team a, a better opportunity than you might be able to get yourself. Uh, that said, like I said in the last episode, still significant, to say the least, improvement on offense from Stewart. And finally, Sadiq Bey. So Sadiq, number one, find your role. I mean, obviously, three-point shooting is is the most important improvement for him. And like I said, like I've said, I, I don't think that he's going to stay at, at a poor percentage, like around 30% from three for long. I think he's just, uh, he's, been a high level shooter for too long. I don't think that's just going to go away. When I say find your role, that that figures into that. I, I think that, like I said last week, he's just gets a little bit too stuck between you know hang out around the perimeter, get the ball and shoot it, and you know get the ball and try to create something with it. Because when he just takes the standard catch and shoots, which he's been doing more lately, he does better. And so I, I think he's just got to find a happy medium there because realistically. The majority of the time he gets the ball on the perimeter and in position to shoot it, he should be shooting it like right away. And he's been more decisive about that way, as opposed to getting the ball and considering giving the defender time to close in on him and then either taking a sidestep three, and those are not high percentage for him. They're almost for everybody virtually are going to be lower percentage looks than just simple catch and shoots uh, or a drive inward. And you know he has been much improved in terms of as a creator, but still I don't think it's ever likely to be his like really his strong suit i don't think uh i think ultimately even if he's in the starting lineup you're probably going to want a guy who's going to be better than him at creating that offense in the way to the basket doing it and uh, from the perimeter on in you know attacking the basket from the perimeter on in and so uh, i think that the threes should still remain his bread and butter the ability to put the ball on the floor and create some offense is great but yeah like i said just find your role sadiq and find your role and play it find that happy medium between shooting between just shooting your catch and shoot threes and and doing a bit of attacking from the perimeter as well and defense. I don't know what happened to him on defense. I, I feel like in his first two seasons he was at the very least an even defender who made good decisions and his defensive head just in terms of defense I mean I don't know where his head has been at this season because he makes mistake after mistake after mistake. He's been awful. Uh, and that has not only been in the starting lineup, it has persisted. Uh, he's not a terrible, terrible defender, but he is bad uh, this season. And I don't think he's—I don't think he's a terrible or a bad defender at heart. I, I don't really know what's going on because he just—he has devolved into a guy. I mean, he's not like a horrible liability, but he just makes a lot of mistakes, which he did not make in his first two seasons. So just needs to get back to where he was at. Smart player, cerebral, uh, you know, smart beyond his years. Uh, and for the first two seasons could be counted upon to make the right decision in the majority of situations and be reliable on both ends. Uh, and he's definitely not been reliable to say the least on defense this season. And then I suppose we come finally to Isaiah Livers, whom I don't really have much to say about and didn't hadn't actually been planning to talk about. This is for a couple of reasons, uh, two reasons together, really. That's he hasn't played for a while at this point. 
and that he started out in, in just a very limited and very constrained role of you're basically out there just to shoot threes on offense and just to try to be a steady guy on defense, just like a solid character, a very limited role player. So I just don't think we've really seen enough of him for me to feel like I have much commentary on, on what he can really improve, though there's there's also, honestly, for me, just a feeling that he's likely just to be a guy who shoots threes, you know, plays steady defense, and doesn't really do much else. Maybe that's not going to be the case. Maybe we'll see him do something different. But we haven't to this stage. That has been what he has done. And, you know, he's been out for a while and will be for the foreseeable future. So I don't have much to say about him at this point. Anyway, folks, that'll be it for today's episode. As always, want to thank you all for listening. I will catch you in the next episode.